invite you to open your Bibles with me. We turn to the Old Testament, to the first book of Kings, chapter 19. 1 Kings 19, beginning at verse 1. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. And Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. When he saw that, he arose and ran for his life, went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die, and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. And as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank. And he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights, as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I've been a very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and a strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. And the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire, a still, small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. Because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Haziel as king over Syria. Also you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Malhola, you shall anoint his prophet in your place. It shall be whoever escapes the sword of Haziel, Jehu will kill. Whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. And yet, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all of whose knees have not bowed to Nebel, and every mouth that has not kissed him. And so he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing the twelve yoke of oxen before him, and he was with the twelfth. Then Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle on him, and he left his oxen, ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. 
And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? So Elijah turned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slaughtered them, boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment, gave it to the people, and they ate. And then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. May God bless the reading of his word. Beloved congregation, I think most of you were here this morning, but to refresh your memory and for the benefit of those who were not, we, be, <clears throat> we began looking this morning at the life of Elijah and we saw that Elijah comes sort of out of the blue, chosen by God's sovereignty. There was nothing particularly special about Elijah. And yet God calls them in the midst of the time when the scriptures say God was more provoked to anger by Israel's behavior and lack of faith in him than at any time before in Israelites' history. And he takes Elijah, an ordinary man, and he uses him to do extraordinary things. And it's a very dramatic story and we followed through. Not only are the, there are the obvious miracles of being cared for at the book Cherish, being with the widow of Zarephath, raising her dead son to life by God's power, and then ultimately the climax on Mount Carmel, but there are other miracles as well. And yet we saw looking with the eyes of the New Testament and the instruction given to us in the book of James that Elijah was a man like of, of like nature as we are, that we are to understand these stories not as an extraordinary man, but in fact as an ordinary man who by God's grace was called and able to do extraordinary things in service of God in his kingdom. We actually saw as we looked carefully that it was the ordinary means of grace. It was Elijah's reliance on the word of God. It was Elijah's prayer life, being in constant communion with God. It was Elijah living Coram Deo in the face of God that equipped him to carry out and to make his faith an active faith that God used mightily in his kingdom. 1 Kings 19 follows 1 Kings 17 and 18, and that's not just a matter of logic and counting. That actually is something that if we understand that Elijah was a man of like passions as we are, then we ought not to be surprised to see what seems to us when we read the story an almost incomprehensible contrast. How is it, we think, when we read the story that Elijah can be on top of Mount Carmel and be empowered by God to confront the political powers, the spiritual powers, the entire nation, and have the faith in God to see him burn up the altar, to see God's presence upon him such that he can run and Pray that rain will come. And here, just a few days later, we find him depressed and in despair, seeking that his life will end. Elijah, a man from pagan Thisbe, Elijah the Tishbite, 
able by the power of God to control the reins and to be used by God to confront the paganism and the empty idolatry of Baal worship, the supposed God who is able to control the reign. We find him in our chapter, despairing, giving up on God and his kingdom and saying, God, I'm the only one you've got left. Take me, it's over. How's that possible? Well, in many ways, it's the very ordinariness of the means of grace that we noticed this morning by which God's works, works faith, it's the absence of them also that explain an awful lot. So as we look at 1 Kings 19, let's look not only at what's in the text, but what's not in the text. The chapter divisions are arbitrary, but this morning we began at 1 Kings 17. And what was the first thing we read? Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. And then the word of the Lord came to him. You see it right there in the opening verse, don't we? The word of the Lord came to Elijah. He communicated the word of the Lord to Ahab. He had a sense of the presence of God as the Lord God of Israel lives. We turn to 1 Kings 19, and here we have the prophet being threatened by Jezebel. And Jezebel sends a message to Ahab, or to Elijah. Elijah came to Ahab in the authority of the God of Israel. Jezebel similarly claims the authority of the gods of Baal. She says, so let the gods do to me, and more also if I make not your life as the life as one of them by tomorrow. Had not Elijah just been used by God to have this tremendous conflict in terms of who was God, Jehovah of Israel or Baal? And here the next day Elijah says, Baal, in the authority of Baal, I'm coming to you. What's, his Elijah, what's Elijah's response? He runs. It's interesting how the scriptures set up the authority of both words. Here is Elijah who had been able to believe in a remarkable way and yet... And yet in this moment, he does not have the present experience of God. And he doesn't turn to his word. And we don't read him praying. No, he doesn't consider any of this, does he? So the first feature we notice about faith is its reliance on the word of God. The first feature we need to notice about despair needs to be the forgetfulness of God's word of relying on human calculations rather than divine calculations. Oh, Elijah's a man like we are, and at a human level, we understand the queen comes and says, you're going to die by tomorrow. It's a perfectly rational response for Elijah to say, wait a minute, I need to get out of here. I need to run and hide and to go to Judah beyond the boundaries of the authority of Ahab 
to go outside of the queen's territory and to escape the punishment that is there. At a human level, we understand that entirely. But in the previous passages, we've been able to see Elijah operating not with human calculations. Human calculations wouldn't say, it's not going to rain till I pray again. Human calculations wouldn't say to the widow of Zarephath, go give me that little bit of flour and oil and feed me first, and God will take care of you. Don't need to worry about it. No, Elijah there was relying on faith and belief and trust in God. 1 Kings 19, we don't see any of that. And not only is there not a reliance on God's word, there's also a neglect of prayer. We noticed this morning and went through and pointed out all the different texts which related the fact of Elijah's communion with God. It was constant that he was engaging in God. It was very clear that God sent him to Ahab and then sent him to Cherith and then sent him to Zarephath and then sent him to Carmel. We had a clear sense of God at each step of the way directing his paths. 1 Kings 19.3 When Elijah saw that Jezebel's threats came, he arose and ran for his life. He doesn't turn and say, Lord, what would you have me to do? He relies on his human defensive impulses and instincts and turns and runs. The fact that he doesn't do that is reinforced by God's question when God finds him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Implied in the question, did I send you here? Is this where you're supposed to be? Did you go here at my sending? Or is this the product of your own calculations? I know as before we continue with the story of Elijah, do we not need to stop for a moment and ask ourselves, is this not the scriptures providing us a barometer that we all know all too well from our own lives? Children of God, those who believe in the Lord, is it not true that your degree of confidence and your sense of God's nearness is almost directly proportional to the health of your devotional life? When you are faithful in prayer and Bible reading, and you have a sense of God's Spirit speaking to you through the Word, is that not the explanation for a lot of your behaviors, God blessing that in your life and providing you direction? And inversely, when you neglect that, when it's not healthy, is it not those the times that we find ourselves running? Oh yes, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word, but when we don't listen to the word, why is it that we're surprised that we find ourselves relying on ourselves? And it doesn't take long, does it, when we rely on ourselves without a sense of God's nearness and presence, the piles and the challenges of life come upon us and very lead, easily lead us to a point of despair. That's what we see in verse 4, isn't it? Let me die. I'm no better than my father's. 
Really? Yeah, really. You're no better than your fathers. There's nothing in you. And yet, Elijah, has not God taken you from Tishbite, cared for you for the last three and a half years, and just a few days ago, worked mightily through you? Have you forgotten all of that, Elijah? Isn't this the voice of a guilty voice? He knows he's left without permission. Humanly speaking, his voice as a prophet is most needed in this time of Israel. Obviously, God is sovereign and we don't have what would have happened if. However, if Elijah had stayed on his post, and if Israel, after seeing that remarkable demonstration of God's power, had heard the faithful preaching of Elijah in the days and the weeks following, Humanly speaking, would that not be expected to lead to a strengthening of that faith? But Elijah's gone from the perch. He runs. He abandons it. I'm alone, he says. Really, Elijah? Did you not just a few days ago come across Obadiah and were surprised by the fact that for the last three and a half years, Obadiah has preserved a hundred prophets in, right under the nose of the king in the palace. We are like nature of Elijah, and isn't it true? Can each of us not look back at our own lives and find moments when we have been as foolish and irrational? The scriptures often refer to sin as blindness. When we read the stories, we we're almost amazed, aren't we? Elijah, this seems so obvious. How can you not see it? And yet he doesn't. He doesn't experience God's nearness and presence. Now that doesn't mean that God was not present. God is present everywhere. Psalm 139, where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heights of heaven, if I go to the depths of hell, to the depths of the sea, you are there. Oh, God is with him as much as he's running from Jezreel into the wilderness, into Judah, into the wilderness. He's as present there with Elijah as he is on Mount Carmel. Just because Elijah doesn't experience his presence does not change the objective reality. Of his presence. It's not just the presence of God, it's also the awareness of his gracious presence that the child of God needs to experience. We need that sense of intimacy, of protection, of fatherly care. When we run on our own, as Elijah did, without God's help, us direction and help, and we're left to ourselves, there are disastrous consequences. And that despair on Elijah's part is real. Elijah goes to Beersheba with his servants, which is a distance of about 90 miles. And then he leaves his servant there and goes another day's journey, we're told, in verse 4, into the wilderness. And finally exhausted, he finds a juniper tree and he slumps down. 
Now, there's a lot of debate about this passage, especially in conservative, reformed, and Presbyterian circles, as it relates especially to spiritual depression and mental illness, those realities. I'm not going to delve into those. Those debates, thankfully, even in our lifetime, have matured significantly from their fierceness in the 80s and 90s to much more of a mutual recognition on both sides, although with different emphasis on the relationship between the curse of sin and individual sin and the effects of sin. Let us be very clear. We need to take care not to blame every mental or physical ailment as Jesus warns us in John 9 regarding the blind man. The blind man was not blind because he sinned. We need to be very careful to draw a direct line to this sin of Elijah, of abandoning God, and trying to figure out exactly what it is in his life that led to it. But it is real, and it is consistent with the Scriptures, that the results of sin is the curse, and the curse are thorns and thistles, and the curse is also physical sins to a physical Weakness in our body, death and decay and sickness, but also sickness of the mind. Whatever the circumstances that led Elijah, was he prone to depression? Was this just the effectiveness, effectively a nervous breakdown? There are lots of different opinions on that, and you can spend your time in the commentaries reading the differing opinions. What is important for our purposes here this afternoon is to notice God's response to Elijah's despair. Elijah's despair is real. It is a consequence of his neglect. He is not walking with God. That is clear from the passage. He's relying on himself. He spirals into these deep, dark depths. And the question is, how does God deal with them? And do we not see a gracious response of mercy? Verse 5, an angel comes to him while he's sleeping. And the first words to Elijah are not words of rebuke. Arise and eat. Elijah, you're physically exhausted. You're hungry. I've prepared food for you. Arise and eat. Verse 7, a second time, God does the same thing. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those that fear him. And God's pity for us extends to our physical needs, to our emotional needs. We have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was at all points tempted as we are yet without sin. God deals with Elijah's need, but he doesn't answer Elijah's question. Elijah says, let me die. God doesn't let him die, does he? God still has work for Elijah to do. And so his work is a work of restoration and preparation. Oh, God's looking forward to commune with Elijah. Remember, he is one of the ones that he, Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration will come will bring back. He's not going to let Elijah's childish expression of his own immediate needs overcome his fatherly hand. No, God comes as a patient father. Arise. Eat. 
and then he equips for continuing service. He instructs Elijah. He doesn't just leave him there. Elijah has some lessons to learn. And Elijah and in, in God in his providence directs him to go another 40 days journey. And here again, we have another miracle by the strength of the food that Elijah had from that angel who was able to go for 40 days and he comes to Horeb. Another name from Mount Sinai. The word Horeb comes from the Hebrew verb that means dry up, lie waste, or be in ruins. This is the place where God had shown the people of Israel during their journey through the wilderness what his law was. It was a place where God had displayed his power as we read this morning in the reading of the law after giving the Ten Commandments with lightnings and thunders. If Elijah would be thinking back, and we don't have reference in the text we're implying here, but why Horeb? Is it because Horeb, in a similar way to Carmel, reminds Elijah of the power of God? God brings them there. And God sends them outside of a cave to the mountain. And you know what happens. First come the winds. What was Elijah thinking when the winds came? Maybe Psalm 104, verse 3. He walks on the waves of the wind. Or maybe he was afraid. He looked at the devastation around him. Perhaps fear came upon him. We read the wind was strong enough to rend the mountains and the rocks. But it says the Lord was not in the wind. Oh, the Lord created the wind. But the Lord did not choose the wind as the means to speak to Elijah this day. And after the wind, an earthquake. Undoubtedly, Elijah was afraid as the earth shook around him. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire comes. But the Lord was not in the fire. And here Elijah stands seeing the display of God's power and effects on the world around him. And yet, Unclear in terms of what God is to say to him. And then God comes in a still, small voice. Elijah, what are you doing here? It's an accusatory question, isn't it? We all know that feeling. Perhaps you're somewhere you don't belong. Children, have you ever been there? You're somewhere where you're not supposed to go. And then your father comes and comes around the corner. Johnny, what are you doing here? You know that feeling inside? That's something of what Elijah has. God comes to him and says, what are you doing here? Why are you running in the wilderness? Away from my word. Did I not protect you the last three and a half years in a land without rain? Even as Ahab was hunting you down the whole time. 
For three and a half years it did not rain. I removed my word at your prayer. Now it's raining. You are my prophet. My word needs to be spread. What are you doing in this cave? What does Elijah say? I'm sorry. No, he's a man like we are. He tries defending himself. I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Oh, there's an element of impudence, isn't there? It's as if Elijah is saying, God, you don't understand. You don't realize what I've been doing for you. I'm the only one left. And they want to take my life. I'm jealous for your name. Do you not realize, God, what I've done? I'm sad for your people's sin. And I'm your only servant left. What a great warning there is, especially for the children of God. How easy is it for us to turn the gifts of God's faith, or God's gifts on our faith, when we carry out in obedience to him and turn them around as if we did them ourselves. God had just dealt so powerfully with Elijah and with Israel, he ought to know better. Did, he think, did Elijah think he had raised the widow of Zarephath's son himself? Was he now so brash to think that he had caused the rain to come down from heaven? And yet what a gracious God we serve. Through the small, still, small voice, God speaks directly to Elijah and he addresses him. And again, he asks the same question. The end of verse 13. What are you doing here, Elijah? And you know what? Even the second time, Elijah gives word for word the exact same answer. He's of like nature as we are. Sometimes we're so slow to learn. But this time the Lord answers Elijah. And notice God's answer is both comprehensive and practical. It affects the enemies of Israel, the nation of Israel, the church, and Elijah himself. He tells Elijah to go anoint Haziel, the king of Syria, Jehu, the king of Israel, Elisha, to succeed you. What's he saying? You want to die? You think you're the only one left in God's kingdom is over? now? I'm the sovereign God and I'm in control. And I used you and I will use others. Have no fear, the kingdom is not over. I will come in judgment on the sins of my people, but I will also come in grace. There are 7,000, Elijah. You're not the only one. I'm not going to abandon you, but I'm not going to abandon the 7,000 you don't even know about. My grace is so much bigger than you, even you, Elijah, who's used by me on Mount Carmel to do great things. Even you just have such a little bit of understanding of the greatness of the kingdom of God. 
Oh, yes. Elijah's a giant of the faith, isn't he? He was used mightily, and yet, as the New Testament reminds us, he was a man of the same nature as us. God uses vessels. God uses men and women with clay feet. God uses us in his service. And yes, we look forward to that day of glory when we will be perfect and all of our sin and brokenness will be behind us. But he doesn't wait till then to use us. He uses us in all of our weakness and brokenness. And he uses Elijah and he teaches Elijah here something about his greatness and his dependence upon him. There are many commentators who understand that God is just referring to 7,000 people that already exist. Arthur Pink suggests that perhaps we should interpret this to say maybe there's not 7,000 today, but that God is raising a remnant and that this is a promise to see, to be understood that God will always have his remnant and his 7,000. I don't think we have to sort out that dispute. We know from the rest of Scripture, God will always have his people. We know that's true. And it certainly was true, just as there were a hundred in the cave, undoubtedly there were more of God's people in Israel. The key here is that God answers with his promise. Elijah had neglected the word. Oh, when he began and he came to Ahab, he said, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And implied in that is the promise of Genesis. Genesis came to Abraham with his covenant promise. I will make you a great nation. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And indeed, the promised Messiah, the seed of Abraham, is implicit in that covenant promise. That's the promise that the story of Elijah starts with. And here we have effectively a renewal of the covenant promise. I have 7,000, and I will always have 7,000. My purposes, which were established in eternity, will never fail, and no, Jezebel isn't going to be able to overcome it. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, we're told in Hebrews. As we come and try to pull together 1 Kings 17 through 19, these events in the life of Elijah as we've been reviewing them in this day, we are inclined to read the story as a very dramatic story of the heights of the mountain and the depths of the valley. And admittedly, it makes for compelling literature, but the Bible isn't literature. The Bible is given by inspiration of God for our instruction. And certainly the core and basic message has been clear, has it not? Elijah is an ordinary person just like you and I. And God in his sovereignty takes ordinary people. And he calls them and he uses them. He uses the means of grace to strengthen and equip them. And then he uses them for the advancement of his kingdom. Faith is God working in them, not they themselves. And yet faith is active. 
It's their responsibility. And even men of great faith fail in that responsibility, have weaknesses and challenges that accompany it. Let me try to pull to this together with just five very summary practical themes. And I know there is much more. Our own pastor in St. George has just finished, I think, a nine-part series on what I have tried to do in two sermons. There is so much more depth here in all of this. And I have not tried to dig into the each, deep into the various details that are there of which there is much riches. Rather, what I've tried to do is just take the overview and take a look at this story, which we're inclined to think of as a great man and realize this is not the story of a great man, but the story of a great God. I've written down five practical things to take home after thinking of Elijah as a man like, like as we are. First of all, is there not implicit in this passage a call for each of us to examine our faith based on our own heart and not the external circumstances. We are inclined to think of Elijah as a way more saved man on Mount Carmel than under the tree. But the reality is he's saved not because of where he is, he's saved because of what God has done for him and therefore his salvation is equal in 1 Kings 19 as 1 Kings 17 and 18. He is just as much a Christian, to use New Testament language, when he's in despair as when he's on top of the mountain. Is that not a comfort to you and I? I don't know about you, but thankfully I haven't had that many situations in my life where I've been in the despair that Elijah has been, but have I been in pretty, some pretty messy situations in which God didn't seem very real to me? My devotions weren't what they should have been, and I was in various ways running from God. And yet when God comes to me, he comes. When you are in Christ Jesus, he comes not with your judgment, but with his fatherly hand of instruction. Yes, he corrects. Yes, he brings us back. We don't need to doubt our salvation. Elijah was saved not because he was on Mount Carmel, and he was not lost because he was running from God. He was saved because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so are we. It teaches us, doesn't us, second but very related point of the difference between union and communion. If you read, especially the Puritans, but many of the Reformed forefathers in theological literature, you often hear that distinction. We are united with God on the basis of the work of Christ. And when we are justified, we are justified in Christ, and God sees us as if we ourselves have done the righteousness that God has done. Christ has paid the price and we wear the robes of Christ's righteousness in the sight of God. We are united to God. Christ lives in us. His Spirit lives in us. And yet, being united to God does not mean we are always in proper communion with God, in fellowship with God. And certainly that is evidence here, isn't it? Elijah runs away. 
person who relies on Christ is in union with Christ, but he may not experience that full communion at a given time. We have many miseries and infirmities in ourselves. We do not have perfect faith. We do not give ourselves to serve God with a zeal as we are bound. We have to strive with our own weakness and the daily lust of the flesh. That's the reality of the Christian life. We've seen Elijah ride that emotional and spiritual roller coaster, but we know that throughout he remains a child of God. But thirdly, even in the child of God, the old man remains. Being a man of like nature with Elijah, just like Paul and Romans. Oh, there's such an old man who wants to defend ourselves. And often the difference between the Christian and the pagan is the pagan comes to God with his self-righteousness and the Christian comes to God with his religious half-truths, just like Elijah did. Elijah's confronted by God. What are you doing here? And he says, I've been very zealous for the Lord of hosts. Really? You're running away from him. You're a soldier who's been set at a post and you've run away. You've, you're derelict in your duty. Elijah has a sense of self-pity, an exaggerated sense of self-importance. Is that not true of us sometimes? And yet, God's provision is great enough for Manasseh, for David, for Peter who denied the Lord, for Elijah who ran from his post of, in fear. Child of God, God's grace is big enough for you and for me as well. Oh, is this not reason for us to turn to Christ, to plead his righteousness, to recognize that it's not our prayers, it's not our Bible reading, it's not our evangelism, it's not our good works. No, there's nothing. And don't try to come with God, to God, defending yourself with with, sanctif- with pharisaical sort of righteousness instead of pagan sort of righteousness. But let the narrative also remind us fourthly of the tenderness of God and his fatherly care for his children. Arise and eat. Use the means of grace. Philip Ryken notes, Most of all, the still small voice means we can have intimate friendship with God. God is so glorious that one glance would obliterate us. He's so mighty in the wind and the fire. His mere presence sends us to the back of the cave. But then he speaks to us in the still small voice. We have got the courage to come to the mouth of the cave where he whispers to us as a friend to a friend. Listen to the still, small voice of gentle Jesus who says to everyone, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Which leads us to the final observation. The story of Elijah reminds us Christ is the ultimate victor. 
We began this morning with Elijah in this born in the heart of Baal worship territory, sovereignly called and used by God. We finish with Elijah being sent to anoint kings, to pass on the mantle, to see God's kingdom advanced and his glory increased. And why is that? Because the God he serves was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who before the counsels of eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, determined that he would gather from the human race a church chosen to everlasting life. And Christ came to accomplish that work. And if Christ came to accomplish that work, that work will be perfectly completed. He didn't do, come to do a half job. And because God's plans are secure and carried out, Israel will survive. Messiah will come and he's coming again. And ultimately God's people will commune with him in fellowship including Elijah, a man just like us, a sinner who through his life carried his sins with him, a sinner saved by grace, who was given faith, who exercised that faith by use of the means of grace and was used mightily by God, but also a man who stumbled and fell, was discouraged, a man to whom the Lord reached down to encourage, the God of Elijah still lives. And he still saves sinners who have natures like us and prepares them for a great and glorious eternity. Let's pray together. Lord, we have sought to open your word. And Lord, it's a dramatic and exciting story, the story of Elijah, which from our youngest years excites us as we see the drama unfold and yet Lord beneath the surface there is such a rich story of grace. Lord we're inclined to think of Elijah as someone so different and yet when we look carefully he's so much like us. And so we pray in your sovereign grace reach down work among us or take us and use us mightily and if there are those who are neglecting the means of grace, those who are, not, who are your children but not walking closely with you, O oh Lord, use these words also to remind them that you are a compassionate and tender God. Could it be, Lord, that you would teach us also through your word the importance of walking closely with you? And Lord, equip us by your spirit. We thank you for the privilege of worship also of this day. Forgive that which was sinful. Be with us as we go from this place. We'll give your name all the honor and glory and praise. We ask it in Christ's name only. Amen.